Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Hebrews 9, and that can be found on page 1206 in the Church Bible. Now, in the first covenant, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and is never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way in the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of all the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all of his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ, the mediator of new covenant, that those who are are called may receive the promised internal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant in this case of a will it is necessarily to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died it never takes effect while the one who made it is living this is why Even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses has proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll of all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. 
In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle, both she, the tabernacle, and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered the heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest entered the most highly place, every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise Christ would have had, had so many suffered. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he was appeared once for all, the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifices of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a word that gives life. Uh, and uh, we uh, confess that uh, there are times, and perhaps this is one of those times when we find it hard to understand, uh, and we pray that by your Spirit, you'll not only make the meaning of these verses in Hebrews clear to us, but that you'll bring them home to our hearts and transform us by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you could have your Bibles open at page 1206, 1207, uh, for uh, Hebrews 9. Um, and look with me um, just near the top of page 1207 at page uh, at verse 5. Um, the last sentence of verse 5 rather captures how I feel about uh, this passage this morning. He says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Now he's talking about the tabernacle uh, and we'll talk about that briefly uh, in a moment. But there is more in Hebrews 9 than we could possibly cover together even if I preached for the whole morning, uh, which would try my stamina and your patience. So we won't do that, uh, but we will try to, to sort of get to the heart of the whole thing and to see just how glorious what God has for us in his word this morning really is. Now, there are some journeys that you just never forget, aren't there? Traveling to something can be a very significant thing. And, and there's one journey I made when I was 20 years old uh, that always sticks in my mind. I've, some of you have heard me talk about it uh, before. The journey wasn't really the point, but it's the thing that really sticks in my mind. It was evening. It was about this time of year, maybe slightly later. So it was dark very early. It was wet. I was a student at the University of Birmingham. Uh, and I was in the most profound spiritual crisis that I have ever experienced and I hope ever to experience. Uh, I, was, uh, I went to uh, university as a Christian. I got very involved with the Christian Union uh, and uh, was invited to lead 
the Christian Union for my halls of residence. And um, I gradually became aware that I was that thing most despised of uh, religion watchers, a religious hypocrite. Uh, I would talk a great game when it came to being Christian. Uh, I would pray uh, prayers that others would, uh, in small groups, if you've ever been part of a Christian small group, then you'll know that sometimes when people are praying, people go, mmm, mmm. Our dog used to do that at home group, actually. Um, but, um, you know, I would pray those sorts of prayers that people would really agree with, and, and uh, I, I could read and understand and explain scripture. I could, I could tell you the gospel. I could tell you the good news of Jesus. But when I was on my own, I almost never prayed. I almost never read my Bible. And I became increasingly conscious of that. Until actually at one point, I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard a voice saying, you don't have enough faith. And it was the most terrifying thing that's happened in my life. And from that moment, for weeks afterwards, I could barely, I could barely be on my own. At one point, I sort of slept on the floor of my housemate. I was profoundly anxious. But it wasn't sort of normal anxiety, it was spiritual. I was aware there was a big problem with me and God. There was stuff that I wasn't doing that I needed to do. I couldn't be the Christian that I claimed to be. And eventually, after much cajoling and persuading, I um, arranged to go and see a Christian counselor at a local church. And, and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, lent me her bike. <laughs> and I remember riding this bike, and partly it was, I made a pretty incongruous uh, image because um, I was a sort of fairly burly rugby player where, riding a, a relatively small ladies' Peugeot racing bike up the streets of Birmingham. The orange streetlights reflecting you know, off the damp road. And I cycled to this church, and I arrived uh, at the reception area uh, and asked to speak to the person whose name I'd been given. Uh, and the person who um, sort of met me at the, at the door sort of looked a bit confused and said, hang on, um, I'll just go and see and I'll, I'll come back. And they came back and they said to me, there's obviously some sort of problem because he's uh, in the PCC and the PCC is meeting tonight. For those of you who don't know, the PCC is like the church council uh, that's responsible for running the whole thing. And um, so he's not going to be able to see you. Really sorry for your wasted journey. No, Hebrews 9. The key thing to understanding Hebrews chapter 9 is uh, verses 1 and 11. Verse 1, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Verse 11, but when Christ came, then and now. If you were here last week, you'll have uh, heard Ben talk to us about how uh, the uh, original tabernacle and then the temple were almost like architects' models of the real thing. They were pointing to something other than themselves. They were temporary, uh, and they were pointing forward. Uh, and that's the 
basic point that the writer of uh, Hebrews is making here in chapter nine. In the past, there was an earthly sanctuary and there were regulations for worship. But when Christ came, everything changed. Uh, And he's showing how Jesus really is the real thing. That Jesus is the one who is really able to meet our needs. He's the one who's really able to bring us to God. Now, as we went through um, the reading, and and in one sense, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it's important to, to do this at this point. As we went through the reading, you may have been struck that hearing Hebrews 9 is a little bit like watching The Shining, if indeed you've watched The Shining. Uh, Probably, uh, apart from the moment where uh, Jack Nicholson bursts through a door with an axe shouting, here's Johnny, the most iconic moment in that film is when um, there's a sort of still, almost a still shot of, of the elevator in the hotel. And then suddenly, blood starts to sort of trickle out of the elevator and then it becomes a kind of great flood and it's, it's pouring down from everywhere. When the studio executives saw that in the script, they said, there's no way you can do that. And he said, don't worry, I'm just going to use water. Uh, but then when he made the film, he actually used uh, at least a simulacrum of, of, of blood kind of gushing down this hotel, through this hotel lobby. And it was, it was gory and it was disgusting. The word blood appears 12 times in this passage. It is absolutely drenched in blood. There is blood everywhere. And you might find that rather off-putting, rather disturbing, and rather confusing. Uh, Why all this emphasis on blood? What's the focus on blood about? And the sort of quantities of blood that we're talking about that the writer's referring to are unimaginably vast. Because he's talking about the old covenant, uh, the religion of the people under and following on from Moses, and everything they did religiously was only possible with blood. He talks about the people being sprinkled with blood, the, 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 the tabernacle itself being sprinkled with blood, everything being sprinkled with blood, to the point that in verse 22, look at it with me, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And you might think blood is not the obvious cleansing agent. How does sprinkling a person with blood make them clean? If you got covered in blood, what would you do? Go and wash. If you got blood on your clothes, what would you do? Actually, tell me that afterwards, because it's always very difficult to get it out, isn't it? So if anyone's got some tips and tricks. Uh, blood doesn't make you clean. It makes you dirty, doesn't it? So why all this talk of blood? And, and under the old covenant in Moses, it, it, it lasted for 1,400 years from the Exodus until the coming of Jesus. And every day, animals were slaughtered. At some points in the year, uh, like uh, the Passover, they actually installed a special drainage uh, um, facility from uh, Jerusalem uh, down into the valley to carry the liters and liters of blood that were shed by sacrificed animals. It's an underestimate to say it's millions of gallons of blood over that period of sacrificial animals were shed. Why? Well, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why is that? You know, if if you're kind of new to Christian things and you see that, you think, well, this seems so strange. But it's the language of sacrifice. 
And it's language that hasn't left us. I don't know if you uh, watch uh, that fantastic show on the BBC, The Traitors. Uh, any, any, anyone watch that or see that? That's become compulsive viewing uh, for us as a family. But it's amazing how often the language of sacrifice comes into that show. So the basic premise is you've got a team of people who go and stay in a hotel. No, it's a, it's a castle in Scotland. Uh, and they do, um, they do tasks every day in order to sort of win money for the prize pot for the whole team. Uh, and uh, they, can, they can kind of gather up to £120,000, which will be split between the people who remain at the end. Uh, and, and the catch is that some of the members of the team are traitors, uh, so they're, they're chosen to be uh, working for themselves rather than from the t- for the team. And each night they murder someone. Now, you'll be pleased to know that that's not a real murder. Uh, it's, uh, it's just sort of symbolic. And the person that's murdered has to leave the castle and, and goes away. And they can't, they're, no, they're no longer part of it. Uh, every night they do that. Uh, uh, and every evening, uh, the whole group gets together and, and gets to vote someone out who they think might be one of those traitors. So when the traitors gather together, they plot and scheme as to how to deceive everyone else, uh, how to get rid of the people who are called faithfuls, uh, so that they can remain at the end and they win the money. Uh, But when the faithfuls, so-called, vote a traitor out, when they're successful in, in rooting out a traitor and dismissing them from the castle, the traitors can choose someone else to be a traitor with them, one of the faithfuls to join them. But when the traitors talk about it, so often what they say is, we could use them as a sacrifice. We'll we'll seduce one of the traitors, one of the faithful to become a traitor, uh, and then we'll we'll cast doubt and guilt onto them, and they'll be dismissed, and and we'll look good because we're helping get rid of a traitor. So they're talking in the language of sacrifice. Uh, And that's the picture here. The picture of sacrifice is another suffering in your place. And the reason for blood in sacrifices is this. That the problem that sacrifices are instituted to deal with is fundamentally the problem of death. So right at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. On the day you eat of it, you shall die. Now we know that fatefully, Adam and Eve did take that fruit. They broke God's law and received the consequences of that law breaking. God said, if you eat it, you will die. They ate it. Say, what has to happen? They have to die. Because God's word in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is the basis of all reality. God says, let there be light, and there is light. Everything God says happens. His word is the basis of reality. It must be kept. So when he says to Adam and Eve, if you eat that fruit, you will die, they must die. There is no way around it. And if they don't, God's a liar. 
And so death comes into the world and it comes to every human being. Every human being who breaks God's law, who pushes God out of the picture, who turns in on themselves and away from him, death must come. And blood is a picture of life within the story of God's people. God actually tells his people, you must not eat any animal with its blood still in it because the life of the animal is in the blood. It's a symbol that's given. And shed blood is the symbol of a life violently ended. And so the picture of sacrifice is the picture of that problem of sin, of our rebellion against God, and of death being dealt with. Something else is dying in your place. And the tabernacle is set up to paint that picture and to paint it in the most vivid colors. Bright red, the color of blood. So there, everything has to be cleansed with blood. Everything has to show that, that life must be ended for life to go on. It's a gory and horrific picture, but a vital one. The problem of sin and death is so huge, it cannot be solved easily. And if you look down at verse 27, you'll see that um, what the author author has in mind, just as people are just destined to die once and after that to face judgment, every human being will stand before the judgment seat of God. And the picture's a a, a bit like uh, Bobby Moore in 1966. Do Do you know this story? At the end of the World Cup final, England have won, and they're going to go and receive the World Cup from the Queen. And as Bobby Moore walks off the pitch and starts to walk up the steps towards where the Queen is, he is suddenly struck with a dreadful realization. There is the Queen wearing these beautiful white gloves. And he looks down at his own hands. And he's just played 120 minutes of football. And his hands are filthy. And I believe that you can actually see the footage. And he's sort of walking up, uh, up the steps, sort of doing this, desperately trying to get the filth off his hands because he's about to shake hands with the queen. Now imagine going to stand before the God who made the whole universe, who is utterly, perfectly good. And who despises evil. Imagine going and standing before that God with even a speck of dirt on your conscience, with even a minor offense standing against you. He is going to pass judgment on your whole life. How could you face him? That's the problem the writer's addressing. And he says that's what the old covenant under Moses is all about. That's why there's so much bloodshedding. It's it's to make people clean. But there's a problem. 
do you see? So that the, there is this tabernacle uh, and, um, uh, and regulations for worship. Um, and if we just have the, the picture of the tabernacle up on the, up on the screen, you can, you can see the basic shape of it. On the outside, uh, there's this courtyard, and everyone can go into that courtyard. But in the, in the sort of reddish-covered tent that you can see uh, at the back... That is where the glory of God is revealed to his people. The tabernacle is a way for God to dwell with his people. But when you hear about how the tabernacle works, you also see how it doesn't work. So the people are allowed into the courtyard and they bring their sacrifices there. But then only the priests are allowed through that first curtain that you can see into the bigger room, what the writer calls the first room, the holy place. The priests enter there regularly to minister. But the place where God's glory dwells in the inner room, only the high priest, that's verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. So the tabernacle is a way for God to dwell with his people, but it also shows that God can't be close to his people. They can't go in. Even the priests don't get to enter the most holy place. Only the high priest does, and him only once a year. And it's almost the exception that proves the rule. No one can go in there. No one can stand before God. So the tabernacle sort of offers access, but really says there's no access. Uh, And that's uh, what the writer says in verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. And it's even worse than that. Uh, Look at the end of verse 7. When the high priest does go in uh, to the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed, in ignorance... So he could go in and, 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 and kind of deal with the sins that the people had committed in ignorance. But what about the things they'd done on purpose? What about the times when they thought, well, I know God says I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Under the old covenant, there was no forgiveness for that. The high priest couldn't make sacrifices for that. So we read in verse 9, This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. And that's what verse 10 explains. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washes, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. External regulations cleansing you on the outside, but not on the inside making you ceremonially clean for worship, but not really dealing with the problem of your heart. But, verse 11, when Christ came, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So the tabernacle that the high priests ministered in in the temple, they were, it was built by human beings. But the throne room of heaven wasn't built by human beings. It's not part of this creation. But Jesus went there. And not carrying the, bloat of the, the blood of goats and calves, but 
carrying his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. You see, the verse, verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean, but how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We'll look across to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The sacrifice of Jesus does what the sacrifices of bulls and goats could never do. It cleanses you completely from the inside out. It takes away every speck on your conscience. The heavy burdens of guilt you carry and the little things that you don't even notice. He dealt with all of it by dying. He gave his life for your life, the life of God himself, the son of God living as a man, shed his blood. And it's not just temporary cleansing. Verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once and for all, he dealt with all your sin. The sin you know about and the sin you don't know about. And here, strikingly, is the really mind-blowing thing. With the sins that you've committed in the past, but also those that you haven't committed yet. For, for, For a long time, historians weren't sure whether Constantine was really converted. Uh, Constantine, the great Roman emperor, who uh, made Christianity a legal religion within uh, the empire in the fourth century, he wasn't baptized until he was on his deathbed. Uh, And a lot of people took that as a sign that he never really believed. But actually, it was a sign that he did believe, although his belief was slightly faulty. And it was quite common uh, in the church at that time to seek deathbed baptism. Now, that is a high-risk strategy if you think that baptism is the thing that cleanses you from your sins because I suppose the question is always, how do I know this is my deathbed? And if I did, would I get in it? But you see, people believed that you were cleansed from your sin when you were baptized. It It symbolized washing. The blood of Jesus took away all of your sin. And so there was this great desire to be baptized right at the end of your life, because then you could be sure that you would face the judgment clean, with a clear conscience. But here's the amazing thing. That's not how it works. Jesus died once and for all 
for all of your sin. So we're back in the church in Birmingham where I have just been told, I'm sorry, he's not able to see you. He's in the PCC meeting. What does young 20-year-old desperate Nick do in response to that? Well, there was only one thing I could do. Honestly, like this was make or break for me. I just said, that's fine, I'll wait. Can you see me afterwards? And they said, okay, all right, all right. Um, and they put me in a, in a room. And it was clearly a room that was mostly used for the storage of chairs uh, and you know, young men who refused to go away, I suppose. Uh, and so I sat there in this room. And it was the days before smartphones. So I couldn't think what to do. Except for the fact that in my pocket, I had a totally unread and unopened book of sermons from the first ever Word Alive conference. Um, it was a book I thought I ought to read, but I'd never really got round to reading it. It was certainly a book I wanted people to think I was the kind of person that would read. So I was carried around with me in my pocket. I'd never taken it out. And so I had literally nothing else to do, so I thought I might as well read this. So, so I opened it up, and I looked through the index, and I thought, well, what shall I read? Well, there was a sermon by someone who I had heard of and thought was the kind of person who I ought to be able to say, oh, yes, I've, I've read his sermon. <laughs> so I started to read. It was a sermon on Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was the song that King David wrote after he'd been caught out in terrible sin. He had made the wife of a soldier in his army pregnant, and then had that soldier murdered in order to cover his own tracks. And Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance, and it is a heartfelt plea for mercy and forgiveness. And there was one line that stood out in, in, in the sermon on that psalm that I read, and it was this. The person who has understood these things will be content never to be anything more than a sinner saved by grace. And in that moment, the heaviest burden I have ever felt on my shoulders was lifted. Because I suddenly realized that in the end, the Christian life is not about me, fundamentally, and what I do, but about Jesus and what he has done. It's not primarily about me keeping myself clean and doing all the right things. It is him who has done all the right things and given his life in my place. And in that moment, I was free from that burden of, of guilt and shame that I'd been carrying. Now, it won't surprise you to know that after that, I was much more eager to read my Bible, much more eager to pray. But not so that God would accept me, but because God had accepted me, has accepted me, has promised that he will accept me. Now, it might be 
that you've come to the church this morning in much the same position that I was in. Putting on a good show outwardly, but inwardly kind of crumbling away. And living with the sort of guilt and shame of a sort of feigned spirituality. And, and you might even feel too ashamed to admit that to yourself. But the extraordinary news of Hebrews 9 is that you're just the sort of person Jesus came for. The old covenant couldn't clear your conscience, but Jesus can. He offers total and perfect forgiveness. Now, it might be that you're someone who doesn't take sin that seriously. You don't think it's a big problem, and you get pretty frustrated at how much we talk about the cross or the blood of Jesus or whatever. I think what Hebrews 9 says to you is that the problem of sin is much worse than you might imagine it to be. It is much more serious. Millions of gallons of animal blood shed throughout the length of the Old Covenant show you that even that is not enough to deal with the problem. But Jesus is. If you want to take Jesus seriously, you need to take his sacrifice seriously. And that means taking the significance of our own sin Seriously, that's why we confess our sin week after week after week. It's not us beating ourselves up. It's, it's ourselves telling the true story of Jesus to ourselves and to God and, and remembering that it is Jesus who makes us clean. It is Jesus who means that we can stand before God on the day of judgment. And perhaps you're not a Christian and perhaps uh, all of this seems pretty weird to you. But if there's even a chance that it's true, that one day you will stand before God and have to give an account for your life, you don't want to be there sort of hoping that your filthy football kit will take the filth off your hands. It won't. But the Christian contention is that Jesus can. Perhaps now is the time to look at him again more closely. He's not a lifestyle coach. He's not a guru who's going to give you good information. He is the son of God himself who shed his blood so that you could stand in the presence of the holy, perfectly good God, unashamed. So look at what uh, the writer says at the end of the passage. Verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, but not to bear the sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When Jesus comes again, when we all stand before God, he will come to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Everything that is needful is already done. We're just waiting to experience the fullness of that reality. A fullness that we experience in part now 
Because just as God's glory came into the tabernacle, even though the people couldn't go in, God sends his Holy Spirit on his church so that now, cleansed by Jesus, every human being who trusts in him becomes a tabernacle, a temple, a place where God dwells by his spirit. And as church together, God dwells amongst us by his spirit. No longer are we shut out from his presence. He is present with us. And the most natural response to that is to pray. Because that's what the priests did in the temple. That's why prayer is so central to everything we do as a church. And that's why we're going to pray now.